All right. Jonah. Pretty ambitious task to try to teach the book of Jonah in like four weeks. And I learned that when I was feeling really confident, like, oh, four chapters, yeah, a chapter a week, it'll be really simple. And when I told Cherie, the secretary, you know, I was like, here's the title of the message in chapter one. We'll just knock the whole first chapter out in the first week. It's not going to happen. We're not going to get very far at all, but by God's grace, we'll still be able to finish it in the time I was allotted in the next few weeks. But the theme for the book of Jonah is that I have chosen is God's message for all mankind. God's message for all mankind. As I read it, as I study it, to me, it just is a great historical account that is a picture for the universal message of salvation. It's kind of like just reading John 3.16, right, but seeing it lived out, seeing it displayed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? Just like we read in Romans chapter 10, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no distinction. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. Right? The same Lord overall is rich to all who call on him. And so as we study this relatively short but powerful book, I pray that it affects our hearts in three different ways. First, I pray that we have a new understanding and desire to obey the responsibility, duty, and command that we have as a church to deliver the message of salvation to all people, right? Enemies and those who disagree with you are not excluded from that list, and I pray that we would have a new fire set within our hearts, a new boldness to not be silent about our faith. That was all just one, by the way. That wasn't three. (laughs) The second thing is to know to truly know that God honors true repentance of sin regardless of who the person is or what they've done. And I think even (laughs) to that end, repenting of sin in our own hearts, seeing others repent of their sin and turn to the Lord and not judging them for their past mistakes, right? Seeing past those things, but realizing that God honors true repentance of sin. That starts in our own hearts. And thirdly, that we would embrace and imitate God's compassionate heart towards sinful men, again, ourselves included. And so if you're willing to have your heart impacted that way, as we study over the next few weeks, I think it's going to be a whale of a time. Come on, one, one, just one. I promise that's it. I promise. I promise that's it. I told my wife, I was like, I think I'm going to make the theme a whale of a tail. She talked me out of it, thankfully. All right, so here we go. Jonah, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And we're just going to camp out here for a little bit before we move on this evening. Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah, just the word itself, his name means dove. And, um, I think that's very apt as he becomes the prophet to this wicked people. We first are introduced to Jonah in Scripture back in 2 Kings chapter 14. I don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you real quick. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And let me start in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So that's the first mention of Jonah we have in Scripture. He's the successor to Elisha as far as prophets go in regards to prophesying and being God's spokesman to the people of Israel. And it says, the word of the Lord came to him. We don't really know what he was doing as the Lord spoke to him. We kind of just jump right into the story here. And in the middle of Jonah's life, as he's ministering to the people, as he's serving the Lord, he was God's mouthpiece during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, like we just read. And Jonah prophesies to him in that verse 25 there that Israel would regain its northern boundaries from Syria during the wicked reign of Jeroboam II. Other than that, though, we don't really know much about him. He's kind of nameless. It's not like we see a whole lot of his ministry. God doesn't choose to record anything else of his homeland ministry apart from what we just kind of read there in 2 Kings. That's all we know. And as we will see as we study this book, and I'm sure as you probably know if you've read this book before, his character traits don't exactly seem to be the most commendable as far as prophets go. He's disobedient. He's complaining a lot. He pouts. He's angry. And truthfully, that just really reminds me of me a lot of the time. But it also reminds me of the testimony of God's grace and patience and willingness to use men to fulfill his work despite their frailties and their shortcomings. And praise God for that. Praise God that somehow he has desired to use us, sinful, frail, full of shortcomings people, to be his messengers, to be his hands and feet, to shine his light. Praise God for that. None of us would be here otherwise. None of us would be here. But God gives the, Jonah a command. He says, arise, go to Nineveh. That word arise just means begin. Make a move to go somewhere. Stop whatever you're doing. Start preparing. This is what's going to happen next. You've got to go somewhere. I know maybe you're even in the middle of something as we kind of jump into this, the middle of Jonah's story here. Um, but what I'm about to tell you to do is more important. You need to start making plans to do that. And he tells him to go to Nineveh, which is like 500 miles northeast from where he's at. If he's over here in Israel and Gath Heber's down here, and I'm trying to do this backwards, so this is Nineveh. So he's got, it's not exactly a light stroll. <laughs> he's telling him, like, you've got a lot of preparation to make to go over here to Nineveh. And the Lord tells him two things. First, he tells him, go to Nineveh. And the first mention of Nineveh that we have in the Bible is back in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11 through 12. And there we read from that, and he, Nimrod, went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resin. Between Nineveh and Kala, that was the principal city. So those three main cities, Resin, Nineveh, and Kala, kind of make up what would be known as the territory of Nineveh. Like when you talk about going to Nineveh, there's three cities there, but they are all kind of considered the same, like city-state, all part of Nineveh. And the Lord calls it that great city, and historians say that Nineveh was the largest city in the world at the time, which is crazy when you think about it, that that's specifically where this little prophet from Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is being told to go. Um, it was the vast capital city of a, a dominating and powerful empire in the Assyrian, the Assyrian Empire. 
It was 60 miles around the city, covering almost 1,900 acres. All right, for Disney fans, the four, the, the four theme parks in Disney only cover about 1,100 acres. But this one city covered 1,900 acres, 60 miles around. It has walls that were 100 feet tall that were, at the, that were thick enough to race three chariots across them, maybe three or four chariots across them abreast at the top. On top of the 100-foot walls, there was 1,200 to 1,500 towers that extended 100 feet higher than the walls, so you know, 200 feet off the ground. And scholars estimate that there's approximately 600,000 to 1 million people within the city. So it is indeed a great city, but on top of that, it is a pagan and Gentile city. A very pagan and Gentile city. And so this, this simple command, seemingly simple in three words, go to Nineveh, is no doubt a very intimidating and daunting task for a prophet of Israel to go. go to, this is not like arise, go to Publix, that great grocery store, and prophesy against it. Okay, like, no, this is, this is, this is a big deal. And naturally, as on top of it just being vast in its size and its circumference and population, as great cities go that are large, there tends to also come a great amount of wickedness. And so the second thing that the Lord tells Jonah to do is to cry out against it. And he tells him to cry out against it for a specific purpose, is that their wickedness has come up before me. As if the size of the city wasn't enough, the Assyrians themselves were dangerous people. Dangerous, barbaric people. They were known for the ways that they would torture their captives to the point where many villages, if they knew the Assyrians were coming, villages, entire villages would commit suicide before the Assyrians would get there. They would take turns killing each other and then the last guy just offed himself. I don't need to be insensitive. I'm just, that's just how it was. In order to escape the cruelty at the hands of the Assyrians. I mean, beheading people, making pyramids out of their heads, skinning people alive like don't have to image it, imagine it, but they were dangerous, cruel people. And he tells them, the Lord tells him, cry out against it, rebuke them for their sin, and call them to repentance. We have to stop sugarcoating sin just because we don't want to offend anybody. We need to be people who, standing on the word of truth, call sin for what it is in our own hearts, and in each other's lives. We need that. I need you to rebuke me. You need me to rebuke you graciously and in love and call each other to repentance. Because within the church, as we allow sin, we just kind of go with the, oh, there's grace mentality. If we allow those things to happen, and this is happening more so, I see, in the church here in the West, but what many people maybe call progressive and pluralistic, God calls heresy and apostasy. And that's what we're to call it too. We're not to just let it be okay to be complacent and to let it live on and grow in our lives, in our hearts. And it's easy because we're all ready and willing to rebuke the sin in other people's lives. <laughs> right? Like it's super easy. It's like if God was, you know, he's like, oh, rebuke them for their sin? Yeah, I can do that. It's super obvious to me what their sin is. I can go and rebuke them. But do we have that same vigilance in recognizing and repenting of the sin in our own lives, in our own hearts? In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, 
mentioning about people who live their lives apart from God, living in these sinful ways. In verse 28, he says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And those are talking about people who do not retain God in their knowledge, right? And then he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Like, what? I could go through that list and be like, I don't do at least two of those. <laughs> like... That's a pretty big list, you know? Paul's just kind of laying it on. But the reality is we're just as guilty. We're just as guilty. And it's easy to point out the sin in other people's lives. But if repentance doesn't start here, then nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. And so he tells them, cry out against it. Are we crying out against the sin in our own lives? David understood this. And you guys are familiar with the passage, Psalm 51, as Nathan comes to him and rebukes him for his sin with Bathsheba, graciously rebukes him, calls him to repentance. Psalm 51, David writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Thoroughly wash me and wash me and wash me. Lord, it's something you have to do. I can't do it. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me if, from my sin. If washing doesn't work, try something else. <laughs> Use fire. It doesn't matter. If washing doesn't work, cleanse me. Try anything so that I can be purified, so that I can be rid of the sin in my life by any means necessary. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. You alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice." Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Is this your attitude? Is this my attitude towards sin in our lives? Do we have this heart of repentance? And I believe it's so easy and I... (laughs) It's so easy to become desensitized 
to sin in our lives because the culture pushes it on us so much. It's so loud about sin. It's easy to just be quiet. Charles Spurgeon said in regards to that passage in Psalm 51, it is not the punishment that David cries out against, but the sin. Many a murderer is more alarmed at the gallows than at the murder which brought him to it. The thief loves the plunder, though he fears the prison. Not so with David. He is sick of his sin. His loudest outcries are against the evil of his transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, he will soon make an end of it to our joy and peace. And historically, we're so far removed from the cross. It's easy to become desensitized, to, not, to lose a grip on the reality of what it meant, that, that what I did hung him there. The greatest display of love ever shown. Let it not be said of us that our sin does not bring us to our knees in repentance or that we allow sin to live and grow in the lives of our brothers and sisters simply because we're too afraid to rebuke them in love. That's what we're called to do. And so this commission that Jonah has from the Lord, he tells him, go to Nineveh, cry out against it. That commission is the same thing for us. It's the same commands he gives to us. Go to fill in the blank. Go to your work. Go to your school. Go to the Publix, that great grocery store. (laughs) Go to the street corner. Maybe a specific person in the church, go and graciously rebuke them for their sin. If you see a brother or sister living in it, receive it if someone is calling it out in your own life and repent. Mark chapter 16, Mark writes, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Praise God, we're gonna celebrate that in a couple weeks. But who does not believe, he who does not believe will be condemned. That's part of the commission. If someone hears the gospel and rejects it, that's their decision. They're going to be held accountable for that decision. But in the same way, we will be held accountable for our disobedience and not telling them. Because that's our job. That's our commission. But it starts by addressing the sin in our own hearts first, by realizing what the cross did for us. And so we can respond to this commission in one of two ways, in obedience, or we can respond like Jonah. In verse 3, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. If, in Isaiah chapter 6, if Isaiah's mission statement is, here I am, Lord, send me, then Jonah's mission statement is, here I am, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> Why try to run? Why try to run? That's a question. I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm like, why? What is the point? Why is he saying this? I mean, surely he knew Psalms 139, right? 7 through 10, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I descend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I mean, surely he knows that. He's a prophet of the Lord. How could a prophet really think that they could physically run from God's presence? He surely, as a prophet, want and have a desire to see souls saved. I mean, like, that's kind of what he's doing. He's God's mouthpiece. Why try to run? 
Many commentators believe that this is not saying that Jonah thought that he could physically distance himself from the omnipresence of God, but rather knowing that the Lord Jehovah dwelt in the temple in Israel and his presence was manifested there, that this idea of fleeing from his presence more accurately speaks to the concept of fleeing from standing in Jehovah's presence as his servant and minister. That he's not trying to get away from the physical presence of the Lord. He knows he can't do that, but he just doesn't want to serve the Lord anymore in that way. If he was able to leave the land of Israel, then maybe he could be relieved of that spirit of prophecy, that being used as God's mouthpiece and the burden of ministering before the Lord in that way. The false thinking, of course, would be that the Lord only revealed himself to men in Israel (laughs) at Jerusalem. Like Jacob, when he awakes from the dream in Genesis 28 and he sees the the stairway and the angels going up and down and um, he wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was in Gentile land. It's like, oh, God reveals himself outside of the city walls? What? So whether or not he truly thinks that he can flee from the physical presence of the Lord, I mean, you can debate about that. That's whatever, but the problem is his reason behind why he was going to do it to begin with. The problem is not necessarily the reason in the sense of like, why is he fleeing? The problem is his heart. Spiritually, Assyria, as we mentioned, was very wicked, but it was very idolatrous. idolatrous, I mean, essentially, it's probably as idolatrous as Israel at the time. And if Jonah knew that to be the case, if he knew of the idolatry, and if he knew of the evil that was taking place in that city, it was rampant in Nineveh, why would he not want to bring the message of repentance and salvation to them? Why would he not want to do that? And we could say it's fear, absolutely. I mean, we talked about how great of a city it was, how evil it was, the things they did to people they didn't like, just conquering. There's absolutely a difficult job to do. I'm not saying like, oh, Jonah, you should have just had more faith. It was a difficult job to do. But that fear was just a facade for what was really in his heart. And I think what was in his heart was that he thought because of their evil that they were beyond saving, that they're beyond worthy of the love of God. In chapter 4, verse 2, we, he writes, and we read, So he prayed, this is Jonah, to please Jonah exceedingly, he became angry, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. What? This is a prophet of God? He's saying, I knew that you would save them and forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go. That's why I didn't want to tell them about your love. They don't deserve it. They're evil. They're wicked. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve your salvation. They don't deserve your grace. And they sure as heck don't deserve your mercy. As an illustration, imagine a Jewish man in New York during World War II hearing God say, I'm going to bring terrible judgment on Germany. I want you to go to Berlin and tell Nazi Germany to repent. And instead of doing that, the man heads for San Francisco and then hops on a boat for Hong Kong. (laughs) That's what's happening. This is what is happening in Jonah's heart. They were unworthy of the love of God. Are you so angry at the beliefs, actions, and words of others that you have lost your love for them and no longer have a desire to see them saved? Is that how you feel? Because that's how the world wants you to feel. (laughs) The world is trying to get you angry at other people. Everything that happens is to try to get you angry, to try to cause a division, to try to get you to hate people. 
What does the word say in James? The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. I heard Pastor Joe Foch up in uh, Philadelphia say, don't ever refuse to go to people that God loves that you don't. Don't ever refuse to go to those kind of people. And like Jonah, if we know the evils that are out there, we see them. I don't even have to go in that, into that. But if we know that those evils are out there in the world, we see the lies, the bondages, the traps, the snares, the false teachings, the satanic ideologies, the idolatry that's out there in the world, why would we not want to bring the message of repentance and salvation to those people? That's our commission. That's what we're going to be held accountable for, is whether we're going to obey it or not. And so is that your heart tonight? Is that your heart tonight? Do you have a desire to bring this message, God's message for all mankind, to your Nineveh? Nineveh was the last place in the world anyone would think that there could be a revival. I mean, even probably just reading about it as I'm talking about it, you're like, no, yeah, no, Jonah's got a point. <laughs> maybe they're past saving. Maybe, maybe they don't deserve it. But through Jonah's words, it was probably maybe one of the most successful ministries ever. And it was one, his prophecy, his words was one simple message was repent. That was it, repent. Eight words. His whole prophecy is eight words long. Like this is the easiest prophetic book to study ever because it's, it's not really, it's a story and then there's like a prophecy, eight words long, and then it's more story. <laughs> but the entire prophecy that he prophesied against Nineveh was eight words long. The whole message was repent, there's judgment coming, and the entire city gets saved. 600,000 to a million people. Do you have this desire to bring this message to your Nineveh? Why not Orlando? Why not your city? Why not your workplace? Why not your school? Why not the last place in the world that you think people will get saved? Is it because your heart is angered? Because you've lost that love for the lost? And I dare say we have far less excuses than Jonah for our disobedience. Far less. So he arises to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. If Nineveh was northeast, Tarshish was about as far as you could go west. Essentially in that culture it was thought to be nigh unto the ends of the earth. <laughs> it's always, and as a city, Tarshish is always associated with ships. In the Bible, the Phoenician people there were known for their seamanship, the strength of their ships. Um, we read about them in 1 Kings chapter 10, 22. And it talks about Solomon, the king, had merchant ships. That phrase, merchant ships, literally means ships of Tarshish. The king had ships of Tarshish at sea and the fleet of Hiram, once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So they were used for their sea seafaring qualities, well known around the world. And so that's his destination, is to go there. He wants to get as far away from the presence and calling of the Lord as he possibly can. As he thinks he possibly can. And if this is you this evening and you're trying to run from the calling of the Lord, can I just encourage you to just give up? Please give up and give in. Don't waste any more time. We, you can't run from his presence. Where, where you go, he goes. If you have his spirit living within you, it's not like you're going to escape that. That's a very comforting and encouraging thought. You can't run from his grace. You can't run from his forgiveness. You can't run from his love. 
If there's something that you know the Lord is asking you to do specifically and you've been running from it, I encourage you to just repent and get back on track. I ran from the calling the Lord put on my life for probably four or five years. Four or five years. I did it my own way. I tried to get away from it. I tried to replace that calling with my own desires. I specifically, as the Lord would bring people to me and specifically tell me, this is what I think the Lord's called you to do with your life, I said, no thanks. (laughs) Now this is what God's called me to do because this is comfortable. I like this. And I can justify it by saying, I'll just, I'll, I'll go do this and pursue my heart's desire, but I'll use it for the Lord. And that way it's okay. And I ran for four to five years until the Lord just broke me and I had my personal Jacob wrestle with the Lord. But if that's you this evening, please repent. Get back on track. The Lord wants to use you. There's work to be done. And he's just waiting for you to get there. (laughs) You have a job and he's waiting for you. And he's going to chase you down and he'll let you keep running, but you're just wasting more time. And it says he went down to Joppa. This was a port city where you would hop on the ship there and you would then take the boats to Tarshish. And he found the ship going to Tarshish. Um, Evidently, he just keeps asking until he finds the right one. If this is a port and there's lots of ships coming in, then he's out, hey, you guys going to Tarshish? No, okay. Are you guys going to the ends of the earth? No, okay. That's where I want to go, as far away as possible. I'm just going to keep asking. Uh, he knew where he wanted to go, and he wasn't going to settle for anything less. But as I, as I read this, though, there's a sense of impulsivity in this. <laughs> he was determined, I'll give him that, but he was quite impulsive. It's, it almost reads to me as just like a gut reaction. Like, I don't know what I'm, what God, I don't want to do what God wants me to do, so I'm going to run away as far as, as far as I can. I'll go to Tarshish. Seems pretty impulsive. Just keep asking, asking, where am I going to go? Okay, you're going to Tarshish, I'm going to hop on that boat. I'll go with you. Impulsive decisions are normally never the right ones. And ultimately, who are we to trust our own hearts and desires, right? Who are we to know? <laughs> like, this is from the Lord. Oh, I just had this feeling that is the, what the Lord wants me to do, or just feel like it. And we base our impulsive decisions based off of our feelings. They're normally never the right ones. And they frequently lead us to do the things that we would condemn or judge others for doing. Like if Jonah is writing this story about somebody else, then he's probably thinking, this guy's an idiot. Like, <laughs> now he's writing it about himself, and he's probably thinking, man, I was an idiot. And if Elisha saw me do this, I'd be in big trouble. But it's easy when we have those decisions to, to condemn others for doing the same thing, and then we go and do it. But if we see, again, if we see your brother and sister acting impulsively, impulsively, irrationally, not seeking the word, not seeking the Lord for a decision in their life, then please come alongside them. Please come alongside them and encourage them with the grace and love and the word to, to guide them through as they try to seek that decision. Don't let a brother or sister stumble just because they're being impulsive and they feel like doing something. So he hops on the ship. He finds one going to Tarshish. And so I'm, I'm going to try to not say that word as much as possible. I'm starting to fumble over it every single time I say it. But it says, He paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He paid the fare just kind of as a quick application or observation here, when we're going to disobey the Lord, it's going to cost you something. When you're going to disobey the Lord, it's going to cost you something. One way or another, the Lord will chasten you. He will. And that's not to, because he's vengeful or angry. 
because he's loving and merciful. It's because in his holiness, he can't let you thrive when there is rebellion in your heart, when there's rebellion in my heart. He loves you too much to let you and me continue to live in that kind of a lifestyle, to continue rebelling and to just kind of let it go, to become complacent or turn the other Turn the other way and pretend like it doesn't happening. That's not happening in your heart. That's not happening in your life. Hebrews twelve five says, "You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten?" But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, not earthly fathers, but he, the Lord, the Heavenly Father, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I don't think Jonah had any idea what it was going to cost him when he paid that fare. I don't think he had any idea what he was getting into. And here's what's happening. Jonah decides to put politics before the kingdom of God and evangelism of the lost. And I mean politics in the sense of doing what's best for him and not for other people. That was more important to him. And I don't even think I need to expound on that thought in regards to the, to the state of our nation or possibly even the state of our own hearts. But he's making the decision based off of what's best for him, not what's best for other people. What's best for other people is that he was obedient. So they could get saved. And praise God, he eventually gets there. We'll get there. No, spoiler alert, if you, haven't, <laughs> if you haven't read it yet. But he cares not about the effect it will have on other people. He only cares about doing what's best for him. It is complete opposite of what Paul writes in Philippians 1.23, right? He's got this inward struggle, right? He's hard-pressed pressed between the two. He's, he desires to go and be with the Lord, which is far better, if anyone argues that, we can have another conversation later. But it's far better to be in the presence of the Lord, right? But you kind of need to stay here on earth as well, because he says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. It wasn't about what was benefiting him. He's writing it from prison. It had nothing to do with how his actions benefited himself. It had everything to do with what he was doing was for the benefit of other people. That's why he willingly stayed in prison. And it says at the beginning of chapter one there, he did it so that way they could be encouraged in their faith, so that way they would be emboldened to tell others about their faith. And so that way, as he handles himself righteously in persecution, it would give an example for other people to say, hey, I can get through this too. And so Paul understands, like, everything that I do, the decisions I make have nothing to do with my benefit. It's about the benefit of other people. Jonah's the exact opposite. Jonah's like, I'm in it for myself here. And I don't care how it affects anybody else, regardless of if it means I'm disobeying what the Lord has specifically told me to do. And so, as we just mentioned, God can allow that kind of rebellion because he loves us. And so he sends a storm. 
Verse 4, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And I read that last phrase, the ship was about to be broken up. I mean, this must have been like a humdinger of a storm, because if these are like ships that are meant to be traveling across distances, long distances across the water, right? Like they're renowned for their seaworthiness. Whatever storm the Lord has brewed is about to break up like possibly the strongest ships that were on the water at the time. So I don't even, I can't even fathom what that was like, this mighty tempest. But, you know, the Lord's got his arsenal and he's trying to get Jonah's attention. And so he sends this storm. I've realized as a Christian, in my walk with the Lord, you're really only ever in one of four places. You're going into a storm, you're in the storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're in between storms. Okay, that, that's the walk. Okay, I don't know where you're at, this, this evening, but that's just life. <laughs> that's just walking with the Lord. He tells us it's going to cost us something. If it's worth it, it's absolutely worth it. Yes, I've counted the cost. I don't care what storm I'm going into or what I'm in the middle of or whatever storm you're in the middle of this evening. Or maybe you're coming out of a storm, praise God. Maybe you're in between storms and you're just enjoying the calm, praise God. But don't get too complacent. <laughs> but no matter, the beautiful thing, no matter which one of those four places you're in, his presence is still with you, no matter what. It doesn't matter. He's with you. He doesn't love you any less if you're going through a storm. Just because, like, you're in the calm doesn't mean, like, you're all of a sudden, now you're in his good graces. No, like, you're, the Lord is always with you. He always loves you. And regardless of what's going on around you, there's always reason to praise him because he's still working. And who knows? Maybe that storm you're going through is for someone else's benefit. We don't know. The Lord allows it. Sometimes God sends it directly, <laughs> like here with Jonah. Sometimes storms happen as a result of our own decisions. Sometimes God simply allows it to happen. But he's always using it for your good or for the benefit of others. And he sends these things. He's allowed these things to, to instruct us, to teach us, to correct us. But ultimately, he does it to sanctify us. So we look less like ourselves and more like Jesus. We reflect him more at the end of it. I have a hat. If you guys know me or you see me walking around the church, you probably know I'm like always wearing a hat. Like I'm a hat guy. My wife hates it. Why do you wear a hat when we go out? I don't know. I'd like hats. Do I need a reason? It's okay. The conversation was way better than that. It was much more edifying. Um, but one of my, uh, one of my uh, favorite hats you probably see me all the time wearing is it says Into the Storm on the front of it. It's a black hat, Into the Storm. It's a plug for the company. Anyway, the, the company that makes that hat has this, um, it's made from this guy who's like a six or eight time CrossFit world champion, but he's a believer, very strong believer in the Lord, always gives praise um, to God whenever, you know, very open about his faith, doesn't compete anymore. Now his family has like a, a buffalo farm out in some Midwest, you know, area where there's land to actually do that sort of thing. But they have this hat that's into the storm, and the story behind it is because of the plains that are, you know, out there in the Midwest, there's not a lot of protection and, you know, buffalo were kind of like at the, at the front, you know, half of their body. And so whenever a storm would come across the plain, the buffalo would instinctively turn towards it. So that way the storm hit the strongest part of their body. And they took on the brunt force of it at the strongest part that could actually bear the force of the storm. And so they turn and they instinctively face the storm. To me, that has some spiritual implications as well, of course. And it's a reminder to me as I wear that not to just face the storm and not try to run from it, but realize that even in the storm, God's presence is there. 
It's like when, when Moses came down, oh, there's the time. Uh, when Moses came down from the mountain and like the thunders and the crashing and the lightning, everything's going on and the Israelites are scared. And what does it say about Moses? And this is I'm paraphrasing, but Moses went into the darkness because that's where the presence of the Lord was. Right, that's where he wanted to be. It was, it was, I want to just be there. If the Lord is there, that's where I want to be. And the Lord is with you no matter what storm you're going through, no matter what process of the storm you're going through, if you're coming out of it, the Lord is with you there. And if that's where you are, then that's where you need to be. And hopefully that's where you want to be because God is using that in your life, I promise you. So, we're going to stop there this evening. And we're going to see as we go forward how God uses this storm specifically in Jonah's life to correct him, to instruct him, and ultimately to change his heart. A heart that begins here with an anger of unworthiness that people are unworthy to be loved and saved by our Lord. But as we read and see the change of his heart, It also shows the rest of the world throughout history what God's message is for all mankind. That all, he desires all men to be saved. That he is compassionate towards sinful men. And that we have a command and a duty to take that gospel, to take that good news, to take that message to anybody. To take it to our Nineveh. To take it to the places we think are the last possible place the Lord wants to work. That's our responsibility. And so I encourage you this evening, if you lost your love for the lost, to repent. If you're running from something the Lord wants you to do, please turn back. The body of Christ needs you. (laughs) The Lord is waiting to use you. And if you've been disobedient and too silent about your faith, then it's time to speak up. The word is very clear. As we see things happening and we're focusing on the Lord's return and just trusting and praying for it to happen. The the word is very clear. There are more people who will be lost than be saved. That's the reality of it. It's a very sad reality. But it's our responsibility to tell as many people as possible before that day comes to not see them as somebody who's lost in the sense of like not being able to be saved, but to see them as a soul that the Lord died for, to be saved. The Lord wants a relationship with them. We are to go, and we are to call them to repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your word. Thank you for the life of Jonah that is so applicable to our lives and can relate on so many levels. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be softened towards the world around us. It's so easy to have our emotions and our anger stirred up against others, even with, within your body, Lord. I pray that we would soften our hearts, remove that heart of stone, give us that heart of flesh for, for one another, Lord, for the world as the evil increases, that we would stand even more firm in your word and your truth, that we would not be afraid to rebuke sin for what it is, to call it out for what it is. And when we see it in each other's life, give us the strength and the, and the grace to, to call each other to repentance, Lord. Lord, we need that. We dwell in unity because of your spirit. And we need your spirit to give us that strength, to give us that boldness, Lord, to stand firm. Lord, to not shy away. Father, this message that you have given us is for all mankind. 
And I pray that we would all be obedient to it. In whichever capacity you have specifically called us to, Lord, if there's anyone that's run, running from a calling you put on their heart, Lord, I pray that they would turn around, that they would take those steps of faith, Lord. Your word tells us without faith it is impossible to please you. I pray that they would take their eyes off maybe the circumstances that are going on around them, Lord, that maybe are distracting them. Lord, they would not rationalize their way into disobedience, but they would keep their eyes fixed on you and be obedient to that call. So that way your message can go forth. Use us, I pray, for your glory. Spend us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.